God, our Father, we, we thank you for your word, for this time you give us together to worship you uh, through a variety of ways, in, in prayer, in song, in reflection on your word. Um, and we just pray that you would be here with us as we uh, open our hearts to your word this morning. Uh, speak to us, grow us into the men and women of God that you've created us to be. And Father, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We give you our sins, and we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We lift before you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift before you those whom we know and love who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we just pray your healing mercies over your people. We lift before you those who grieve, and we pray your comfort over them. We pray especially for uh, Linda Harmon's family, Tim and Taylor, and their extended families, uh, just that you would minister your peace and your comfort to their hearts as we mourn her loss. And Lord, we uh, lift before you this nation and the many wounds that we bear these days, and we just pray that we, your people, would be agents of peace and grace and love in this dark and hurting world. And Lord, that um, you would be with our leaders at every level of government, elected and appointed. Give them wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. Be with our men and women in uniform all over this country and all around the world. Protect them, keep them safe. We pray especially for those who are separated from their loved ones due to their service to our country, and we pray you would watch over them, bring them home safely, be with their families as they are apart. We lift up your church here at Hope and around the world. We think of uh, the church plants in our denomination in Texas that are ongoing in Katy, Texas, and New Braunfels, and in Austin, and we just pray your blessing over those young works that you would uh, strengthen and grow your kingdom through their efforts. We lift up our missionaries all over the world in Guatemala and Laredo, Texas and Cuba and Beirut, Lebanon and elsewhere in the Middle East and we just pray your blessings over what you are doing in those faraway places um, and Lord we pray that you would be at work here as well in our hearts, in our church use us to extend your grace and grow your kingdom and share your love with those around us we pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. So we're in a series of messages called Run Through the Bible. And we started this series in Genesis because that's where you start a series that's going to go through the whole Bible. You start it in Genesis because that's where it starts. Right. That's how you do that. Um, and we looked in the book of Genesis, uh, there were four big events in the first 11 chapters where God's promise was revealed in creation, in the fall of mankind into sin, in the flood of Noah, and in the Tower of Babel story where people are dispersed into the nations of the world. And then we saw God's promise come back down to one family, that of Abraham and Sarah who were barren and elderly, 
when God's promise came to them that, that Abraham and Sarah would be the parents of a great nation and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. And so then we traced that promise through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and then Joseph and Judah and how the promise was given to Judah that through his family, God would raise up a king. And then we looked at the story of Moses in the book of Exodus and how God's promise comes back to one person in that burning bush. And God reveals to Moses who he is. He gives Moses his name. He says, I am. And Moses uh, is sort of this really uniquely qualified person for, the, for God to dispatch his promise through because he grew up in the palace of the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And he was educated, he was literate, he was um, very well versed in, in cultural and historical learning and language. And he was the person who, who brings the Hebrew language into its current alphabetical form, who had the education to do this. He taught other people under him how to, how to record God's word and preserve it for posterity. We enjoy the first five books of the Bible uh, in part because God orchestrated history so that Moses would grow up in the one place where he could learn how to be literate and how to teach others. Um, and he li- almost... Like an, it's just an amazing convergence of history into one person. And God's promise comes down to him and his family and then explodes into uh, the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And we see God's power, the promise shown, the power shown through God's promise to bring them through the Red Sea to defeat uh, Pharaoh in their wake to sort of grow God's people, to give them a culture and a language and a history and a faith and and the laws that would govern their hearts and their lives. And then we looked at three books of the Bible together, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We saw how um, God is faithful to his people, and yet they grumble against him and his leaders, and they are discontent. Uh, We also talked about how important it is when we read these passages to see ourselves in those verses. We we don't want to read the book of Numbers and be like, how could they act this way in response to a God who saved them and brought them out of bondage and through the Red Sea and provided manna and water and quail for them every single day? How could they grumble against him and their leader? And we want to look at those passages and say, that's us. This, that's who I am. I, I'm a grumbler. I'm, 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 I'm a person who's never really satisfied with anyone's will other than my own. And so we, we looked at that section of scripture together, and now we come to the point where Moses has passed away, and the commissioned leader for God's people is a man named Joshua. It's important to note that the name Joshua has uh, profound meaning for us. The name itself means God saves. That's what the name means. 
it's also the same Jewish root name that we, of the person we call Jesus. In, in Hebrew, Joshua is pronounced Yeshua. Uh, Jesus is a Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Yeshua. So Jesus and Joshua have the same name. And what the name means is that God saves. And so what I want us to do today is take a look at the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and look at how God's promise is continued and revealed better to us through these portions of his word. It's important to remember that we're talking about one promise that is continually unfolding through the redemptive history of God's relationship with his chosen people. Uh, It's important to know you are in that group. These promises are your promises. They're not to some other group of people. They're yours. And so as we read this, it's important for you to take these things to heart and to understand that God is speaking to you and to me and to each of us both individually and corporately as his people. So we're going to just sort of uh, run through the book of Joshua really quickly. Um, The first thing you see is God's people are on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and they're about to cross over into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of uh, fear, there's a lot of questioning, and this is what God says to Joshua, and and what what he would say to you is, take heart, because I am with you. Take heart, because God is with you. Joshua 1, 9, God says to Joshua, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Can I just ask you, do you need to hear that? I do. The power of those words at the very moment that God's people are in this just incredible tension between, okay, we're finally leaving the wilderness and we're about to enter the promised land, but the problem is the promised land is occupied by its native inhabitants and there's going to be struggle, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be war, and that just brings a wealth of uncertainty, sort of like a global pandemic, you know, Um, And what does God say? What does God say to Joshua on the brink of that historic moment? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. We are to take heart, to know that God is with us. Uh, The next thing that happens in the book of Joshua is the beginning of the story of Rahab. God sends, or Joshua sends spies into the city of Jericho. You probably know the story. Israel's about to cross in, and spies are sent over, 
And this is like, this is serious James Bond stuff right here, right? The spies go into Jericho, and what's the one place that nobody would be suspicious of two foreigners going in? A prostitute's house, right? That's like, makes sense, I guess. So Joshua's chosen agents enter into the city of Jericho and go straight to the, what do you want to call that? The brothel? The red light district, all right? Uh, or the red cord district. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there, they, they spy out the city and conspire with Rahab, the, the madam, I guess, I don't know, the hoochie mama, and uh, make their plans to get out. And Rahab says to them, look, I've heard about your God, and I know you're going to have, he's going to give you victory. So will you please just think of me and my family when you come into this city? And the spies say, no problem. You've helped us. Just tie that red cord, take it off your front door, put it on your window, and when we come back, we will make sure that anyone that's in your house is protected. And so here we see the, this is, these are the, this is the exchange, but we're to see the signs. See the signs that God is at work. And, and this comes in unlikely ways to unlikely people like us. But let me just read this passage, and then we'll talk about some of the signs that we see here. And she said, that's Rahab, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. So what are the signs that we see here? Um, to me, one of the most obvious signs is the, the three days in hiding, right? That, that salvation comes after a three-day wait, I don't know why, but we see this in Scripture repeatedly, and then it's fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ on the third day. It's quite amazing, really. Um, the scarlet cord, this color, uh, keeps popping up in Scripture in, in the blood of the sacrifices, in the cord tied on Rahab's window. Salvation is associated with this color, um, and then let's talk for a moment about the kinds of people that are included in God's covenant promise, right? There's his chosen grumbling people who, whose hearts don't stay where they belong. And then there's this pagan prostitute and her entire family that is brought into the promise through this interaction, God's promise is for everyone. It's not just for us. It's for the whole world, all kinds of people. And then let's just talk about the way that God's promise moves through miraculous mothers. We saw God's promise move through Eve. We saw God's promise moved through barren Sarah, who gave birth to the nation 
that would develop into Israel. We saw God's promise moved forward in redemptive history by Moses' mother, who gave birth to him and put him in a basket, covered it in pitch, sent him down the Nile where Pharaoh's daughter found him. We see here in Rahab this miraculous vision of God's promise by a most unlikely person who becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus. She's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew as being in the lineage of Christ. Think about that. That is just stunning. That this this woman of ill repute, of pagan origin, an enemy to God's people, would be folded into the promise of God without hesitation, without anything other than God's grace redefining who she is. And we will see later in today's message um, the miraculous mother Ruth, who is also an ancestor of Jesus. And then next week we'll see a miraculous mom named Hannah, who who gives birth to the man who will anoint the first kings of Israel and and sort of set forward the promise again. So all of these, and, and of course that string of miraculous moms leads all the way to Mary and her conception of the Messiah as a virgin. Um, it's just a beautiful string of people through whom the promise comes and is moved forward. We are to see the signs in God's word that he is moving all of our hearts toward the cross of Jesus Christ. So we take heart because God is with us. We look for the signs. We see the signs in God's word that point us toward the cross. And we're to know (laughs) that God does not need us. Uh, The story of Joshua... Is, is a proof of this, right? They come into the promised land, and God says, I don't want you to go to battle. I don't want you to raise a sword. Um, I don't want you to set siege to this city. I just want you to walk around in circles. And so they walk around it once a day for seven days, and then seven times in one day, and the walls come down. They shout. Well, I'll read it to you. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. God is making it clear that he wants our involvement in in the spread of his promise, but he doesn't need us. We are not needed we are loved, and there's a big difference there. We, we have a God who is sovereign, who is almighty, who is without need, and yet he desires that we be brought into his family and that we extend his promise to the people around us. So in knowing that God does not need us, this allows us to enter into his rest. This is a, a powerful 
concept that is fairly unique to Judaism in this time period, this idea of rest. Um, I want you to think for a second about the religious context out of which God's people had come out of Egypt, where there are hundreds of gods, and they're all competing for your attention, your offerings, and guess what? Your fear. They all want you to be afraid of them in some capacity. And Israel is about to move into a a land where paganism is the norm, where there are hundreds of gods, and they're all competing for your offerings and your fears. And as God's people are set on this precipice and brought into the promised land, not by their strength, but by the the all-powerful God whom they serve, they learn something that God wants them not to be afraid of him. There is a fear of the Lord that's healthy. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not dispatching with that portion of his word. But I'm talking about his call to be at rest in his strength, in his presence, in his arms. To be a people who are not afraid of their God, who don't serve their God out of fear, who serve their God out of love and gratitude, and who are at rest in his strength and presence in their lives. From Joshua chapter 11, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This rest did not last very long, but it's, it's this little blurb right at the point where the conquest, the entering of God's people into the promised land sort of comes to a, a conclusion in the book of Joshua. And then the last half of the book of Joshua is, is the division of the land by tribe. And some of the tribes even are given pieces of land that still have other people living there. So they're, it's like, thanks. <laughs> um, uh, but this idea, this, this Hebrew concept of rest is right at the center of the book of Joshua. That we are to take heart that God is with us, to see the signs that point to the cross, to know that God doesn't need us, but that he calls us to enter into his rest And then at the end of the book of Joshua, we see this beautiful passage. You probably have this or or know someone who has this on a a plaque on their wall in their house or wherever. Um, But this call to make your choice, to make your choice for who you are and who you serve. And so Joshua is talking to to all of Israel. And remember the context from which they came and into which they are entering And hear these words. Joshua says this in chapter 24, starting in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve 
whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And the book of Joshua concludes in this expression of strength. This is a man whose heart is at rest in his knowledge of who he is in the future Messiah. That God has claimed him that he knows this, that God doesn't need him, but God wants him. And he's at rest, and that gives him strength and confidence. It is, this is the fulfillment of what God said to him in chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, and know that I'm with you. So that's sort of the overview of the book of Joshua. We're going to jump through into the book of Judges, and then to the book of Ruth. If... Joshua's contribution to the history of redemption is our call to come into our inheritance, then the book of Judges is our call to claim our salvation, to cry out to God for his help. So I'm going to sort of move around almost backwards in the book of Judges, but I'm going to start towards uh, the end of the book. And there's these words that we find in chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have to be able to see the problem. If we're going to understand our claim to salvation through Jesus Christ, we have to understand the problem. The problem is we think we know best. We think we know better than God. We think we're in charge. And this is very well articulated in the book of Judges. And when, when you see that problem, you need to then also see the cycle that develops out of that problem. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Just get a little clip here. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the cycle that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges. God's people are suffering. They cry out to God. He hears their cry. He raises up a judge who brings about freedom and rest, and they have peace, and then they grumble, and then they complain, and they fall into bondage to another nation, and they suffer and they cry out and God hears them and God raises up a judge and he saves them and they have rest and peace and then they grumble and then they fall back and just lather, rinse, repeat, right? Um, that is the cycle and the call of the book of Judges is to call upon your creator, to turn your heart to God. Judges chapter 4, I'm going to read Verse 1 and then part of verse 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Great story, by the way. I encourage you to read that one for yourself. Uh, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. This is what we're supposed to do. When, when life is terrible, you have a choice. You can let the circumstances of life drive you away from God and away from God's people or you can cry out to God and let those circumstances draw you closer to him and closer to his people. And 
This is made abundantly clear in the book of Judges. And we are also called in this breaking of the cycle of sin and calling out to God, we're called to put our trust fully in him. And I'm just referring to the story of Gideon here, who uh, is the judge that God raises up to save Israel out of uh, their, they have an occupying army that's telling them what to do and charging them taxes and tributes and whatever. And God raises up, they cry out to God, the people cry out to God, God raises up Gideon. And I, I love the story, it's, it's in your reading assignment for this week, but when God comes to Gideon, do you know where he is? He's hiding. He's in a hole threshing wheat because he doesn't want the enemies to see the wheat that he has and then come in and steal it. And God says to him, greetings, oh mighty warrior. <laughs> you know, the, just the, this is like my love language right here, right? God is, has, has got a little sarcastic edge in, in the book of Judges. Um, and uh, he raises up Gideon. Gideon questions him in multiple ways. You can read it yourself. Uh, and then God says, okay, we're going to battle. And he says, but I don't need all your guys. So tell all the ones that are, that are afraid they can go home to mama. And I don't know, like half the army goes home, right? Uh, and he goes, oh, that's still too many. There's way too many. I don't need that many. Um, tell your men to go down to that river and drink. And the ones who drink like weirdos, I'm going to pick them, right? The ones who, the, the, the minority of the guys who drink like freaks, I'm going to take them because I'm, I'm here to prove something to you. And um, so here it is. Judges chapter 7. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. We are to put our trust fully in God. And, of course, that story ends with, I think, 300 men uh, carrying some, some uh, terracotta jars uh, into the, to the edge of the camp of their enemy army that grotesquely outnumbers them. And they're hiding their torches, I think, in the jars, and they get down to the edge of camp. They break the torches. I mean, I'm sorry. They break the jars, hold up the torches, and blow their trumpets. And the Midianites all kill each They come out of their tents with their swords, and they're just killing each other in their, in their own camp. And... God says, that's what I can do. I, I'm, I'm the one, I'm trying to tell you something. Trust me. Work with me. <laughs> Rest in me. I've got this. And so I'm just going to kind of leave that as our summary of the book of Judges, that this is where God tells us in his word that we are to claim our salvation, to cry out to him and trust fully in his ability to save. Now, we're going to jump into the book of Ruth. This is great stuff. So, in your reading assignment this week, 
Friday's reading is just the entire book of Ruth. Don't worry, it's only four chapters. It's totally worth reading. If you don't read anything else this week, read this. Although I love the story of Ehud because that's just disgustingly awesome. Um, But this woman is exceptional in every sense of the word. So there's an Israelite family. Uh, The mother's name is Naomi. And she and her husband, there's a famine in Israel, and they move to a neighboring country. And their two sons marry women from that neighboring country who are not Israelites. And then all the men in the family die. And Naomi, the matriarch, uh, has a decision or some decisions to make. The obligation of those two women that were married to her sons is to stick with her and remarry, but those kids would be counted as her grandkids. Don't try to figure this out. This is cultural antiquity. Um, So Naomi says, no, I'm not going to do that to you. Y'all are young. You're beautiful. Go on with your lives. Get out of here. You don't need to stay. I'm going to go back to my people because they have an obligation to take care of me. Uh, A widow's um, life in antiquity was not a good life. Uh, It was living on the scraps of everyone else's table. Um, But she knew that God's people had an obligation to at least provide the minimal amount of care for her her in her widowhood. So she tells these girls, y'all are free. Go home to your families, start over, get married again, have a good life. And her daughter-in-law named Ruth, her first daughter-in-law does, this is a very ancient thing. She's like, no, no, I couldn't do that. And Naomi says, yes, you can, please, you're free to go. She's like, boom, (laughs) she's out. But you have to deny it once. You have to deny the gift once. And then if it's offered again, you can take it. You can't take it on the first offer. That's like, yeah, not cool. So Naomi then turns to Ruth and says, go. Just go home, sweetheart. Start over. And, well, I'll just read you what Ruth says. And, okay, I got ahead of myself first thing that the book of Ruth tells us to do as God's children is to look past our circumstances. Ruth chapter 1, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahlon and Shileon died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's Naomi's reality. The second thing this book calls us to do is to look to those people, those godly people who inspire us, to look to them to be our examples of what Christian life is supposed to look like. In further in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi is the one speaking, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more. So why would this girl make this decision to go live in abject poverty with her mother-in-law? Because she had seen something in her. She had seen the glimmer of faith in the promise of God and how Naomi lived with strength and confidence in rest, in peace with her creator. That Naomi's faith was strong and alive. And Ruth said, I'm not leaving that. I want what you have. You have shown me something I've never seen in any other person. And I'm not leaving. I want more of that. And we really are to do that. We're to look at each other and see the things that inspire our faith to be stronger, to make our hearts uh, more grounded and more engaged in the promise of God, to see in those around you. And just look around. There are some incredible souls in this room and on this Zoom that inspire me to be a better person, but I'm not really interested in being a better person. I'm interested in, in being a better follower of Jesus. And so we are to look to those who inspire us, and we are to look to our Redeemer. So these two women go back to Israel, and there's some really ancient cultural uh, norms that are in play here that are hard to explain, but there's an obligation on the part of Naomi's extended family to care for her as a widow and for someone to marry her daughter-in-law would mean that that man would have to give up his claim that those are his kids because he's marrying the widow of an Israelite whatever kids they have will be that man's kids does that make sense it's just sort of an ancient cultural norm. So Ruth's chances of getting remarried are a right at about negative 30. Like nobody wants that. Nobody wants to, to take responsibility so that her kids cannot be his kids. Who wants that, right? That's, that's the logic of the time period anyway. So they go back and... This man named Boaz is very moved by Ruth's affection and dedication to Naomi, the widow. And Boaz is like, all right, that girl's impressive. She is sticking with her mother-in-law when she should have gone back. I will, I will, I'm inspired by her to step forward take responsibility, and give her the offspring she deserves. And so, well, we'll just read 
this little passage that tells us to look to our Redeemer. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and then by doing so, takes responsibility for both of these women and their livelihood and security in his family. He is what would have been called at the time their kinsman redeemer. And he is a picture of Christ. And not only is he a picture of Christ, but he and Ruth, remember earlier we talked about the string of miraculous moms, Boaz and Ruth give birth to uh, a son named Obed, who then later has a son named Jesse, who then later has a son named David. You've probably heard about him. He was the second king of Israel. God wants you to know something. You're part of his plan. And you may feel like your life hasn't played out according to your plan. You may feel like you've blown it, you missed it, you dropped the ball. God says, you're wrong. You are part of my eternal plan. You are included in my promise to bring redemption to all kinds of people, including you. And so we'll conclude this uh, journey through Ruth with this verse from chapter 4, verse 17, where we're told to know that we are a part of God's plan. Ruth 4, 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Did you catch that? Who lost her two sons? This is her grandson, but a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You can cross-reference that with Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and you will see that Ruth and Boaz are included in the lineage of Christ, the ancestry of Christ. So this whole thing is an attempt to see a singular promise from God to his people to bless not just them, but the whole world through them. And we've watched that promise unfold through generation and generation, and we are looking forward to the, the complete fulfillment of that promise through the Messiah. So I want to I read these words. These were written by a Jewish follower of Jesus, after he had seen how Jesus, the second Joshua, if you will, brought about God's will for God's people. We need to, when we're reading the Bible, we need to take every passage we read and carry it all the way to the resurrection of Christ. This is from 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. Peter says this, According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are a part of God's plan. You are part of God's family. And to see the strength that that truth gives to your heart and your soul, the ability that you have in Christ to rest, to be in love with God, not afraid of him, to be at peace with your creator and yourself, to know that he died on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins, to free you from bondage, and that he was raised from the dead, that your hope may be eternal. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word. We thank you for the promise that you made to your people long ago that you keep fulfilling in heart after heart. And we thank you that we are among those hearts to whom the promise has been made. That we can be strong and courageous and at the same time rest in the strength of your word and your promise and your Messiah. To know that we have an eternal inheritance in Christ who not only saved us and redeemed us, but loves us now and forever. Help our souls to rest in this truth and help us to be a part of the extension of your promise into this dark and hurting world. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.